Welcome to Arcanex Sessions, episode 96. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're joined by Emily Hunt-Turner. We recently featured Emily in our Working Out of the Box series as an architect-turned-lawyer-turned-restaurateur. It was her experience working as a lawyer for the Department of Housing and Urban Development that inspired us to invite her on today. It's so great to have you on the podcast, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Really nice to be here. So before we get started, I really want to encourage everyone out there to read our profile on Emily in in our Working Out of the Box feature. It was super inspiring. And I mean, I think it was we, we got probably more positive feedback from our readers than any of the others. So definitely worth checking out. And that said, in that feature, we talked about your your restaurant and your initiative uh, elsewhere. Maybe you could give us an update on that. How's that going? You bet. Yeah, it's it's going well. It's going well. And thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. Things are moving forward. So we're actually we are so to all square is a is a gourmet grilled cheese restaurant that we are opening here in Minneapolis. And the aim is to hire and um, also empower people with criminal records. And it's going well. We are hoping to sign a lease March 1st and start the build out in June or July with an opening in late August. Excellent. Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit for those of our listeners that haven't followed your story through our feature. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what what brought you to this point? What What's your background? You bet. You bet. Well, I was actually working as uh, an attorney here in the Twin Cities on civil rights. And I was working for the Department of Housing for the last, well, technically the last five years, four years as an attorney and one year as a law clerk. And prior to that, I went to architecture school and have just really always been very compelled by um, what was first you know, the design of housing and, you know, what gradually sort of moved into all the issues associated with housing. So I was working on um, housing discrimination for the past four or five years for the Department of Housing. And, you know, really in short, you know, it was through that work that I was exposed to the overlap between criminal records and the and access to housing. Uh, and was absolutely stunned to realize that, you know, once you've acquired a record, even just in arrest, if, you know, people find it virtually impossible to to move forward. So that's sort of the work that I was involved in. And all of that has gradually generated the work with Allsquare. And before that, you were an architect, correct? Yeah, yeah. I went to school out at Syracuse and, uh, you know, did, did a few internships in the summer, but I did go straight from architecture school to graduate school. So I haven't I haven't, you know, launched into the full-on discipline, and I suppose it's been about seven years since I've really been, you know, submerged in the architectural world, but it's been a really nice segue back into the discipline through this restaurant. So not too long ago, we did a podcast on uh, Ben Carson, and uh, when he was a nominee, thought about as a a nominee, actually, for HUD. And one of the criticisms, and because I I totally, it totally slipped my mind that uh, you would have been the perfect person to have on to talk about this. Um, One of the criticisms of the podcast is that we didn't have anybody on who had a connection to housing and urban development, even an architect who might have worked with HUD. So I guess, I guess some of the, uh, I guess the first question is, is that what is, if you could talk about what HUD actually does, maybe not every single thing, but generally give people uh, who are listening to the podcast a sense of what HUD is and what its uh, goals are. And maybe you can outline that a little bit. Yeah, you bet. Well, and can I also, can I mention how exciting it is to you know, to not be an official employee of HUD and to be able to speak (laughs) (laughs) relatively freely. I mean, I have some constraints, but it has been really great. This is not to 
to sound anti-HUD or anything, but I certainly have um, and had my critiques. And it's very nice just to be in a sort of, you know, free forum, being able to, as a citizen, just discuss. But yeah, so, you know, the general aim of HUD, right, is to provide, you know, not to be cliched with our mission, but to provide safe and sanitary housing to um, what I believe is to the lowest, you know, the lowest echelon of our country. And, um, you know, from my experience at HUD, you know, the work that HUD does is generally twofold. It's to to fund affordable housing and provide, you know, housing throughout the country, but also to insure. So that was something I didn't, you know, realize we did a lot of, but we insure through FHA on a lot of mortgages as well. And and um, we insure a lot of multifamily housing projects, both pr- public and private. So that is in short what HUD as a, you know, sort of overarching entity does. So what would be some of the things that perhaps us as architects or design professionals wouldn't be aware of that HUD does that we kind of maybe perhaps over, overlook or aren't aware of? Is there anything you could talk about in that area? Well, I would say in my mind, one of the things that, you know, and this doesn't as much go to design as it, as, as it does to sort of, you know, the basically the ways in which cities unfold and, and the, the footprint of a city, right? I think that HUD, through its policies, right, and through what it does and more importantly does not decide to enforce I think the patterns that we see, particularly in housing throughout the country, have are really facilitated by the department in a way that I don't I don't know that that would have been a connection as an architect interested in housing that I would have made. But I do think that a lot of what happens at the federal level we see play out in who has access to loans and who has access to housing and what you know tenant selection policies are are being used in public housing and then also sometimes in private so i think that that you know is is a really big piece of what HUD facilitates. And in ways, I think that HUD does a good job. And in other ways, I think it's been detrimental, the sort of approaches that HUD has taken. Could you talk a little bit about some of the efforts that HUD is involved with in terms of non-discrimination policies and how this current administration and the the new secretary of HUD could potentially impact those efforts going forward? So regardless of the administration, really, one thing that I saw at HUD that I was really troubled by was, you know, the, this duty to affirmatively further fair housing, right? It is an obligation, civil rights obligation for any entitlement jurisdiction that takes HUD funds. They have a civil rights obligation to make sure that not only that, you know, housing discrimination isn't being championed, but that those entitlement jurisdictions are really proactively making sure that fair housing and access to housing is is happening, right? And, you know, one thing that's really frustrating is that we have seen time and time and time again, I can't tell you on how many different occasions, that entitlement jurisdictions that receive really vast amount of funds from HUD are, I hate to say, but rarely, you know, adhering to that duty to affirmatively further fair housing. And, you know, in my mind, right, what should happen is when you find entitlement jurisdictions that have taken these sorts of funds to further this mission, and in my mind, a really critical mission, and they don't do that, the response is to take away the funds, right? And honestly, we haven't seen HUD actually take away funds from entitlement jurisdictions who are not adhering to their civil rights obligations since I believe it was actually under 
Richard Nixon, right? It was George Romney who Whoa. was the last. Yeah, George <laughs> Romney was the last Secretary of HUD to to actually not only give a slap on the wrist, but to say we're going to refrain from giving you these funds until you actually take the steps that that we've flagged as really important. And uh, I believe actually George Romney was quickly. <laughs> shifted around. And, and I don't think the position lasted long, but, you know, I think, and that gets really political. But for me, that was one of the the really flagrant issues that I was continually seeing that the millions of dollars are going to entitlement jurisdictions who are not being mindful of their civil rights obligations. And, you know, I think that that's really problematic because, you know, one thing that I would really want to make clear and that I feel very strongly about is that housing discrimination is is now very sophisticated, right? Like you don't see many racially restrictive covenants. You don't see a lot of, you know, language around, you know, no Latinos can live here. I mean, people have gotten, it's not that that housing discrimination has disappeared. It's just been reorchestrated. And, you know, we find housing discrimination today in land use, in zoning and in lending algorithms, right? So one of the things that's so frustrating about HUD is I feel like housing discrimination has gotten so sophisticated, yet we haven't kept up with with that. And so not only is it harder to see, but on top of it, we're not enforcing it where we do see it happening. You know, we're not we're not really setting boundaries and saying, listen, if this is all private money and you want a white enclave, fine. But at the end of the day, this isn't, right? Like you are an entitlement jurisdiction taking millions of dollars to do the public work and you're not adhering to, you know, the civil rights obligations that you have. So it's really, yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's been a really frustrating part of the, you know, that working for the department was seeing these recurrent issues and seeing so little done about it. So would you say it's because of the increasing public-private partnerships that we're seeing more of these things happen? And as we start to enter in, into an administration that seem uh, seemingly bent on in leveraging those uh, public-private partnerships, that this will become more problematic? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You hit it hit it on the head. And, and um, you know, I think that in theory, the sort of what's called the mixed income housing model that really, you know, in the late 90s swept through and replaced the public housing model. In theory, it sounded great, but in application, I think it's been really detrimental for a number of reasons. And I think the biggest reason is, right, that although, I mean, when you think about it, when public dollars are going to fund what is often seen as mixed income development, number one, the number of units that are earmarked for public, true public housing are cut by two thirds, right? So that, you know, they have a, a whole bunch of different varieties of units. And so you're losing out on the number of units, which is a big deal. And, you know, I think another thing that's happened is when you switch to having the oversight being a private third party management company, as opposed to the federal government, I understand that as far as efficiency is concerned, that that's probably a good thing. But with that private property manager comes tenant selection policies that are often very, very egregious. And, and in my opinion, you know, I mean, criminal records, for instance, is a huge one where private property managers won't allow anyone to access, you know, their units if they have a record. And so I think you have tenant selection policies that I don't think often adhere to civil rights sort of guidelines. And then, you know, the other part of it is you know, if you look at these private management companies and you look at these mixed income housing developments that we're seeing all across the country now, right? The area 
you know, the, the average median income, the AMI that, that they are pitching for is 60, 70, 80% AMI. I mean, it was so shocking for me to be working at HUD as an attorney, right? And feeling like, you know, especially in the first year or so when my salary was was still pretty low. Like, I mean, at 60 and 70% AMI, I could qualify for some of the units that I was seeing. And it was like, well, what the hell? Like that, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> exactly. this is ridiculous. Like I'm a, I'm an attorney. I should not be able to, a, a, you know, qualify for what's late, what's pitched as affordable housing. So, you know, I think it's just really, I do think that um, the public-private sort of shift has been extremely problematic. And I, I absolutely worry, you know, when you talk, Ken, a little bit about this current administration, what worries me most is, well, number one, I, I think what HUD decides not to enforce will stay the same, right? I think that regardless of the administration, that sort of, you know, the way that enforcement should happen hasn't been, in my mind, properly orchestrated in decades. But I think the bigger thing for me is the composition of the Supreme Court, because we have had, as far as housing is concerned, right, and what's happening with housing patterns and affordable housing and housing discrimination, we have very, very few laws on the books that actually protect people. And these laws have been hanging on by threads, you know, through the last 10 to 15 years. And my biggest concern is that with the, the composition of the Supreme Court, you know, with a more conservative lean, that we will lose some really important civil rights protections in the housing arena. And the biggest one being the disparate impact liability. So I'm extremely concerned about that and, and frankly, the future of, of housing discrimination given the change. Can you explain that? What do you mean, disparate impact? Yeah, sure, it definitely. And this has been, for me, uh, you know, it's, this sort of ties back into All Square, right? And my reasoning for wanting to launch All Square is that, you know, essentially disparate impact, what it allows is it, it's a, it's a legal theory that allows for someone to file a lawsuit based on, right, for instance, for housing discrimination. And it looks at the effect of a policy or a practice as opposed to just the intent, right? So sort of traditional housing discrimination laws allowed, you know, you have to prove intent, right? That there was intentional discrimination. And again, this is sort of, in my mind, the law evolving with, you know, how sophisticated the discrimination has gotten. The disparate impact theory, again, it looks at the impact or the effect of a policy or practice. And it was in 2015, there was a huge case. It was a 5-4 decision, the Inclusive Communities decision out of Texas. And that was looking at actually the um, low-income housing tax credits and how those are being allocated and where. And that's where the disparate impact theory was upheld as formal liability saying, right, if you have a policy or practice that, you know, maybe we can't prove the intent, but if it's having the effect of disproportionately affecting, right, non-white communities, then you can file suit on, on that base. And I think it's, you know, again, tying back to all square for me, disparate impact was an absolutely critical legal remedy to have in the context of criminal records. So, you know, what I was seeing, right, was, was, people were filing suit left and right, you know, with the department saying I'm being discriminated against on the basis of 
having a criminal record. And what we had to say was, right, um, having a criminal record isn't a protected class. So there wasn't a lot of legal remedies that we could provide. But the good thing was when disparate impact liability was upheld, we were able to say, for instance, right, there was a huge memo that went out to housing providers all across the country, public and private housing providers across the country saying, if you have a policy or practice that disproportionately impacts non-white communities, this policy or practice could very legally violate the law. And for instance, if you are saying, if you are adopting an outright ban on individuals with criminal records, because we know that the criminal justice system disproportionately impacts non-white communities, these kinds of policies and practices could be violative of the law. And so for me, honestly, it's been really the only way to combat certain brands of discrimination, particularly discrimination on the basis of having a criminal record. And it's just it's just so important. And um, so losing that losing that form of liability, which, you know, I do think we we really could lose in the next few years is absolutely terrifying because I think it's just it's one of the only ways that, um, you know, zoning is another good example. I've been working on a on a book that looks at, I, you know, I witnessed this crazy zoning. I mean, it was the most egregious <laughs> sort of instance of housing discrimination I've seen. And it was it was done through uh, an ordinance in New Orleans. And, you know, it's it's without the disparate impact theory to be able to say, like, look, we can't find the smoking gun piece of paper that says we don't want any blacks living in our neighborhood. So we're going to adopt this ordinance. But if we can prove that, right, that the ordinance that you adopted and we sort of look sequentially at what's happened and we look at the effect that it has on, you know, certain populations, then we might have a way to actually combat that, you know, and, and push back. So that's sort of, I hope I'm able to, I hope I'm explaining that well. I think it's a, it's a seemingly really complicated form of legal liability, but essentially it just it allows us to actually combat discrimination in its very sophisticated form of today. So, Emily, have you personally spoken to people who have criminal backgrounds? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's it's kind of setting up what I wanted to ask you about. So I have a criminal record and it was um, it was uh, a simple assault charge. And one of the things that has scared me since it happened, it happened over 20 almost 30 years ago, even to this day, even though I think Minnesota has eliminated that question from applications, I still am petrified whenever I apply for something and I see that come up Sure, because I'm like, well, do I talk about something that they don't really, they're not really clear about the language about if I answer this question, how do I answer it? It's so long ago. Is it even in anything? Is there any way they could find out? And if I bring it up, am I saying something that I shouldn't be saying? Can you talk about when you talk to people who have criminal backgrounds, do they express that kind of fear and that psychology around like the, the kind of petrified sense of that particular question on on these kinds of applications? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of shame involved. And to me, you know, that that's really contributed to this, what seems to be this sort of national empathy deficit, right? This shaming everyone who has a record, regardless of when the record took place, why it took place, what was the background. And I think, you know, the bigger thing too, Ken, is that, I mean, I just appreciate your honesty so much because 
I don't happen to have a criminal record, but I should have at least three or four if I look back in my 20s and <laughs> think of, um, you know, and it's, I think that's, you know, and I think about privilege and how that plays out and, and probably the reasons why I don't. But at the end of the day, I should, right? And I, I certainly could have been arrested more than one time. And I think there's just this sort of equalizing factor when people are willing to talk about having their record, willing to talk about, right? We're all so much more than the shittiest thing we've ever done. And (laughs) I mean, geez, it's just, it's this. um, So yeah, I think one of the most sort of memorable slash gut-wrenching experiences I had was in my final year at HUD. And it was actually this past spring when I got a call from a gentleman who it was similar, right? He was living in Texas, Texas or Florida, just a sweet man. You know, and he, it was, he was just so real with me. He said, listen, I'm a Latino man. I'm in my 70s. My criminal record is from 41 years ago. And I've been applying and applying and applying for housing at the same place. You know, it was a public housing authority I can't remember. I think it was Florida. And they just absolutely, they have a a blanket policy that refuses to let anyone with any kind of criminal background into the, you know, access their housing. And and it was just, you know, it was him just sort of saying, listen, I want to move on. I've been wanting to move on. This has caused me problems my entire life. I mean, God, I'm an old man. I just want a place to live and I'm just applying for public housing. You know, this isn't, this isn't even uh, anything fancy or anything on the private, on the private side of things. And yeah, I think, you know, exactly what you're talking about, Ken came up right that, that sense of just that, that sort of raw visceral, you could just tell that he was struggling and he was embarrassed and he had a lot of shame. And I think, you know, it just, it just blew my mind that we claim, right. That through, you know, paying your fine or or paying your time through incarceration, right? Like you pay your debt to society. At least that's what we claim, right? But yet people move beyond their record and that record still just, it's like you really aren't paying your debts to society, right? If we're going to hang it out over people's heads for the rest of their lives, it it just, um, it really blows my mind that, that we have such a an environment that causes such trepidation for people who who have a record or have a paper trail of having a record, right? So let's talk about your restaurant then and how Allsquare is going to address this issue. And I, I just want to put in a little anecdote myself that um, because I know it's much bigger than just any one of the topics we've been talking about in your your you have spoken in your interview about um, about being able to provide lots of different services for formerly incarcerated people or, or people coming out of that system. And my personal story of it is that someone very, very close to me had hired someone on uh, who was on a work release program and it went really well for a couple months. And then this person, this this person on the work release was told, OK, you're paroled, you're out. And he was told that in the morning and they said, you have five hours to give us a permanent address at which you can be reached. Otherwise, we're going to put you back in the back in the clinker again. And I have talked with people about that this system seems to be set up to sort of make sure that people fail, right? To make sure that they don't get the housing, that they don't get the things they need. And so you had mentioned that Allscore was not just a place to teach sort of living skills, but you would hope that it would evolve into something that's more, that provides more opportunities and more uh, more of a range of services. So let's talk a little about sort of this beginning vision of all square and then how that how you see that filling out into something bigger yeah you bet no i think 
You know, it was interesting talking to uh, some of my dearest friends who who were incarcerated many years. You know, they used to say to me, "Em, this this shit about wait, making people wait two to five years or ten years before they can even apply." When we leave prison, right, we have seventy two hours. That's that's yeah. generally right. Like that's that's the amount of time we have to find a job find a place to yeah. live. And if we if you miss that 72 hours, there's a very good chance people are going to go back. And that made it very real for me, right? So that, and this gentleman actually who, who taught me that is on our board of directors, and he's been really, really instrumental in really shaping, right? Like how does Allscore become more than just a, an, you know, employment, right? Because a job is, is one, sadly, one tiny piece of this really big hole and I couldn't agree more that I think we have, we're right now people are set up to fail, right? We ask them why they're not turning their lives around and point their fingers, point fingers at them when they don't yet. We offer no supportive services, generally speaking. So, you know, the idea with Allscore is yes, to be a place of employment, but really it's a, it is, you know, right now we have it set up as a, a 13 month curriculum, right? So um, let's say our sort of executive advisor, Richard, who is in the prisons every week, he will be the primary person that does all of our hiring, right? So we've, you know, someone leaves prison and within that first 72 hours, they know they have a job. And so that would be when this sort of paid month of um, training, workforce training starts. And when you graduate from that, you start a 12-month sort of, you know, paid internship, essentially, right? I mean, it is, it's their student employees is what we're calling them. And that was sort of important to secure the nonprofit status. And so, yes, it's employment and and it'll, you know, the hope there, right, is that you, we build soft skills, hard skills. There's a resume pad, right? You have, you're able to go to your next job and say, look, I had this position and it's, you know, I think that's the biggest thing, right? It's just, they just need someone to take a chance on them, really. But, you know, six months through, right, six months through this curriculum is when the the sort of personal and professional development is sort of slated to come in, right? And and again, Richard and our board of directors has, have, have really helped shape what this is going to look like. But that's where it's taking a look at what, you know, asking people, what do you, what do you want, right? Like what is in, you know, this is short term, but in the long term, what kind of work do you want to do, right? Do we have any, any connections in the city that we could, can we get you an internship, right? If, if you want a paralegal, you know, a paralegal, for instance, are there some courses that you could get involved in, you know, sort of what's the, what's the next step after all square. And, um, you know, I think between that and, and I, my hope is that, you know, this becomes, yes, a, a place of employment, but it's, it's a sincere support network, right? Where we are saying to people on the inside, we are here on the outside. And when you, when you get out, we care. And instead of excluding you, we're actually going to invest in you and be your partner and moving forward in your life. And we aren't counting on you to fail. We're actually going to do everything we can to make sure you succeed. And um, so that's really what the restaurant is, right? It is a place of employment, but more than anything, it's a, it's a captivating, I hope, social network work that really, you know, helps people know that they're not alone. And would you, I hope, be able to have uh, address with the, the housing component in some way as well, have, Absolutely. you know, have uh, friendly landlords, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, that's frankly leveraging my privilege as, as a white person and my privilege as an attorney. Those are the areas that I'm really hoping that I can you know, be beneficial on. I think that housing is just absolutely critical. And I got, you know, I was 
got a lot of experience in trying to convince housing providers that, you know, not just to accept anyone, but to just at the very least, right, like think about and ask what is the relevance of the record and what was going on, you know, ask some questions about who they are now and what they're looking to, you know, to do from this point forward. And and so we've already sort of started that, you know, I can't say that housing you know, we've worked through all the housing components yet, but we've definitely started sort of, you know, getting a, a spreadsheet of who are the housing providers that we've spoken to that would be willing to, you know, house some of our employees. And we have actually, you know, I can't say names, but we do have one prospect where I know that there is a, a sort of purchasing of a multifamily property in South Minneapolis and someone who's really into the idea of all square and really into sort of dedicating, you know, 10 to 15 units of housing for our employees, which would just, I mean, it would just be, to me, it can make or break the successful reentry, you know? So, Emily, I had one uh, other question sure. before we kind of uh, wrap up with a final question. Got it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds, dun, dun, dun. Very, sounds very serious. I know. <laughs> so, would you be able to say that there's a, any canaries in the coal mine we could look for as, I mean, because architects are usually the first ones. Well, I won't say they're the first ones because developers who are going for TIF are kind of the first ones. But generally speaking, we'll, we'll see potential impacts of HUD decisions before lay people do. Mm-hmm. My sense, you know, unless the press is, is particularly mindful and, and um, they ask the right questions and, and go to the listening meetings that uh, our dear secretary, uh, Ben Carson, plans on having. Right. Because, you know, right. he stayed in some he, he was a public housing um, so he knows a lot about public housing. Exactly. Yeah. Are there any canaries in the coal mine that we could potentially be on the lookout for, for uh, impacts that uh, we can push back on pretty early instead of you know, waiting till they kind of get to a, uh, an actionable level? You know, that's that's such a, not any that I can that I can think of. I was thinking of this myself, right? And thinking of, man, should, should I try to write an op-ed or like, how do we play a role in this right now, right? And, and try to, to take meaningful action, at least ahead of, you know, ahead of what potentially could be coming down the, the pipe. And I, I really don't know, honestly, anything offhand, but I will certainly get back to you if I, if I think of anything. I think for me right now, it's like you said, it's it's talking to people. It's going to the community meetings. It's it, for me, frankly, and you know, I'm a big one on, on the housing discrimination end of things. But I'm I'm very mindful of ordinances that are adopted and you know changes in. I think the biggest thing will be the the, the disparate impact stuff, and that's unfortunately there's not enough a lot that we as citizens and or architects can do on that front. The and what's interesting is that I actually got a phone call recently from uh, Jacob Fry. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Jacob Fry is, which is probably most people, uh, Jacob Fry is a city council member here in uh, Minneapolis who's actually going to be running for mayor. Actually announced running for mayor. He called me and asked me what my concerns were. And I really kind of laid into him about, you know, we've we've built a lot of housing for the 1%, but we seem to be lagging uh, significantly on affordable housing for most people in this community. I mean, you know, we've been doing a lot of building in the warehouse district and in downtown Minneapolis for for people who can afford those uh, two thousand dollar a month rents. Yeah. And one of the things he said to me was he 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 heard that concern. He took it to heart, and um, he thought that one of the things that he didn't particularly like that exists in Minneapolis right now is the the TIF 
uh, financing. They have affordable housing in some of these projects, but they only last for perhaps 10 years. Yeah. And then they go to market rate. So his his one of his thoughts was uh, that perhaps we need to extend the the criteria around the affordable housing component so that these developers aren't getting basically free money and to create these projects. And then kind of in 10 years, they're selling them off to private owners who then the affordable housing component is lost. So I thought that was one area that was probably one actionable thing that if we can get behind people who support that initiative to kind of do that was pretty good. Absolutely. I mean, that and that is the exact reason why, in my mind, why the affordable housing crisis is what it is today is because a lot of those expirations, right, of the terms are, are they've expired, right? So the all the money that went into TIF project, you know, projects of all varieties that have, okay, for 10 years, we'll maintain some affordable units, but then we'll go to market rate. I mean, how is there a long-term investment in affordable housing if it's all being phased out like that? It just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. So on the front, I think on the LIHTC front with the tax credits, you know, tax credits, there's studies and information all over the country and, and that Supreme Court was included, right, that tax credits have been prove, <laughs> proven to be segregating cities. I mean, that's just the reality. The fact that, that white suburbs are getting all sorts of money yet don't have any truly affordable housing in their you know, in their jurisdictions, there's absolutely no excuse for it. None whatsoever. So, you know, in my mind, it's, yeah, I think that's a great point, Ken. Definitely some, a way to get involved for sure. So we've, I think, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, we've reached the end of the podcast and it's time for the dreaded question. <laughs> the dreaded. <laughs> it's kind of become like, oh, I got to think of something new. <laughs> but we always want to know the answer. So, so uh, Emily, what yes. are you listening to and what are you reading? Oh, oh fun. <laughs> um, I'll start with the I'll start with the listening to you, right? Because it's it's as lame as it gets. I mean, really, it's so I'm listening to and have been listening to. It's called the Miracle Morning, and it is sort of one of those self help. I mean, it's as cheesy as it can get, but the whole idea, right, is that from five to eight a.m., right, you it's you invest in your own personal development before your day gets out of hand and you get behind that you have time for some some meditation and self-reflection and you know working on whatever you want to work on that sort of keeps you morally in tune with you know the universe or so, so to speak so that's something I've been listening to which you know I've, I'm taking it taking it with a grain of salt and what I've been reading I've actually t I've tuned totally out of newspapers um, for the time being which is really unlike me but it's it's all too depressing and um, <laughs> I've been reading right now I'm reading a book called being mortal and um, hmm. it's a really great book on, you know, the so, sort of how unnatural death has become um, in our society, given the involvement of, of medicine and hospitals. And also really more than anything, how, you know, we don't allow sort of aging in place and, and sort of warehousing the elderly in these facilities disallows them to you know, be making really important decisions about themselves, like what do they eat? And, you know, just this sort of that, you know, looking at how, yeah, we might be, you know, getting older, but, you know, our minds are still sharp and we'd prefer some autonomy. And so it's a really beautiful book written by actually by a surgeon, just sort of looking at what's happening medically and how we die and how we might go back to something a little bit more organic. Cool. That sounds beautiful. It is. It really is. Well, thanks so much, 
Emily, for joining us today. And thanks so much for all the amazing work that you're doing. Oh, I appreciate it, you guys. I could talk about this stuff all day long, and I really appreciate you having me on. I really do. Well, we really enjoyed having you on. And thanks to everyone out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com with uh, suggestions and feedback. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. We really appreciate that. And uh, that's it for this episode. We'll talk to everybody in two weeks.